So what exactly should Canada be doing about its policy with respect to East Asia? Are we doing the right things? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about national security. Normally on these podcasts, I talk about terrorism. And don't worry, there's lots of terrorism still to talk about. But for today's podcast, I wanted to go into another aspect of national security. And that's what Canada, as an example of a Western nation, should be doing about the East Asian issue. And by that issue, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that I'm recording this in early August 2022. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, have just been to Taiwan, which really pissed the Chinese off. And of course, they, the, the usual saber rattling. I love the term saber rattling. It reminds me of Mel Gibson and Braveheart, you know, dashing their, their swords against the shields kind of thing. Anyhow, uh, China got upset. They uh, fired missiles across Taiwan. They crossed the median line. A lot of reporting about, you know, oh, my God, this is going to be the final straw that breaks the camel's back. Well, I guess I'm not sure if there's any camels in East Asia. But anyhow, whatever exists in East Asia in terms of beasts of burden, this was the final straw. And China was going to launch an invasion of Taiwan, yada, yada, yada. Well, it seems things have settled down, at least for the time being. But who knows with what happens. But more importantly... I think it's it's important to discuss what Canada is doing or not doing or should be doing or should not be doing with respect to East Asia. You, you've heard me complain in the past that successive Canadian governments of whatever political stripe, conservative or liberal, seem to ignore a lot of the advice being given to them by security services such as CSIS, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, where I worked, about Chinese interference in Canadian affairs. Are we then doing what we should be doing with respect to to China and East Asia? And to help me with this conversation, I am absolutely thrilled to be inviting to the podcast Jonathan Berkshire Miller. He is an international affairs professional. He spent some time with Global Affairs Canada, although back then it was called Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. He has had a variety of positions with think tanks. He's currently a senior fellow with the Japanese Institute of International Affairs and is also the director of and Senior Fellow of the Indo-Pacific Program at the Ottawa-based McDonald-Laurie Institute. So, Jonathan, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Phil. It's a real pleasure to be on. Easy question first. How worried were you, or how worried should we be in the aftermath of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? It got a lot of press, as I'm sure you're aware. A lot of it, what I call instant analysis and what it meant. Was this, in fact, a turning point, or was this just another example of something that a Western nation did to, you know, put Chinese knickers or knickers in a knot or knackers in it, whatever I'm trying to say here, was it as bad as people said it was? And what do you think is going to be happening going forward? Well, I mean, I think there was a lot of, you know, debate uh, in the in the international media, and especially in the U.S. Uh, media ahead of the visit, you know, whether this was uh, helpful, whether it provided value, whether it would antagonize the Chinese, um, whether... Um, actions to support and uh, to deter the Chinese in Taiwan would be more effective than Pelosi's visit itself. All of this is fine, but I think at, at this point, the, the sort of the decision process of Pelosi going or not, I think is a sort of a moot point. I mean, and I think if we spend too much time on that, that's probably um, missing the point. I mean, my one um, sort of takeaway for that is that number one, it's not uh, unprecedented for a U.S. Speaker of the House who is uh, in the sort of the leadership succession, third in line to the president. It's not a precedent um, for a Speaker of the House to visit Taiwan. And this has happened mm -hmm. 25 years ago with the Newt Gingrich of and the Republican Party. So this is nothing, this is no news. Um, it's consistent with the one China policy, uh, so to say. 
Um, so the idea from the Chinese side that this is an outrageous uh, violation and that this is, um, you know, a symbol of the United States that they're endorsing Taiwan's move towards independence, I think it doesn't hold water. Um, but the reason I said that I think there's a bit too much focus on the visit itself is it's the reaction and it's what happens next. And I think China clearly is using this moment. And, and in a way, I mean, while they were screaming to the rooftops before, I feel like they've almost enjoyed this moment to use as a pretext um, uh, to uh, remove any guardrails around Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the you know examples of how they've reacted, I mean, it's not just mil- in military terms. Um, it's through cyber attacks. It's through mm-hmm. trade sanctions on, on Taiwanese goods. Um, the thing that should open eyes in Canada, um, and I'm hoping it does, is that the Chinese have also used this as a pretext for uh, to create regional provocations beyond just uh, the Taiwan relationship and beyond just the U.S.-China relationship. So one example, and you know, Phil, you kindly you know mentioned in my bio that one of my roles is in Japan, um, is that several of the ballistic missiles uh, that they tested around uh, the northeast of Taiwan's mm-hmm. island. Uh, landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone. So clearly the Chinese didn't do this by accident. Um, They're intentionally signaling to the United States and to its allies to to butt their nose out uh, and that this is not their concern. Now, if memory serves me correct, Jonathan, you mentioned Japan's uh, exclusive economic zone. Would those missiles have been sort of linked to, there's another controversy or conflict that China has with Japan, correct, over some islands that the Chinese call something that the Japanese call something else. Was this, as you said, China's effort to not only say, look at, you know, Taiwan is ours, will always be ours, we're going to prove it. Was this also, as you alluded to, sort of um, a nod in Japan's directions that, oh, by the way, our, our, our dis- disagreement with you over the islands hasn't disappeared either? Yes, I think it's all linked. And I mean, so uh, the Senkaku uh, Islands, which uh, Japan uh, administers and controls, uh, but China also claims them and calls them D- the Diayu. Uh, interestingly enough, and, and making an extra complication is Taiwan also claims these islands. Oh, but it's I that. <laughs> So it's a sort of a three-way um, uh, claim, uh, but the Taiwanese and the Japanese have managed their, um, their tensions over this and actually have a very, very strong relationship um, despite the fact that Japan was a colonial power on, uh, in Taiwan before. So they've been able to manage that claim, but the Chinese um, have had a consistent presence. And I mean, this is, again, something that uh, I know the newsreel, the 24-7 newsreel, there's so much um, dark news that we don't have the time to pay attention to everything. But um, many kind of have forgotten this, uh, that, you know, they, they focus on the Taiwan issue. They mm-hmm. focus sometimes on, on North Korea or sometimes they hear about the South China Sea, mm-hmm. but they don't often uh, hear about this dispute, which is an everyday challenge, frankly, for the Japanese. Um, the Chinese uh, Coast Guard ships and um, quote-unquote maritime militia, which is a, uh, a mix of fishing vessels, commercial vessels, Coast Guard, um, r- really under the guidance of, of the Communist Party itself, um, that's an everyday challenge for the Japanese, and they're mm-hmm. infringing on, on Japan's uh, uh, contiguous own waters, uh, EEZ, etc. So all of these things are linked. And I mean, again, the last sort of point I would make on this is it's not just Japan in, involved in this, but it links down to the South China Sea also mm-hmm. in ASEAN. Um, mm-hmm. It's one maritime continuum. Um, military strategists often talk about the first island chain, which connects uh, Taiwan to the South China Sea and all the way up to Okinawa, which is uh, which is in that area mm-hmm. uh, of this disputed claim. The Chinese very much see this first island chain as critical to their uh, defense posture and their ability to push back against what they consider American hegemony in this region. So it's all connected. I'm really glad you raised the point with Japan, uh, Jonathan, as well as the, the South China Sea. I, 
you know, I've always seen China, and I'm not a China specialist like you are by any stretch of the imagination. I've always seen China as what I would call an equal opportunity bully. Uh, they don't seem to really care who they piss off or who they you know, push their weight around, whether it's in Xinjiang or Tibet or, uh, you know, with, with, with Vietnam, with, with parts of Myanmar, South China Sea, the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. Bringing the conversation back to Canada, though, you wrote in a recent article that, and I quote, Canada is still a spectator on Asia. What did you mean by that? Well, the reality is, and I mean, again, let me link this a little bit to what's happening right now in, in Europe. Um, and again, I'm a, a big fan of us taking a stand against Russia's uh, unjust prosecution of a war in Ukraine. I think that we do need to be doing more in NATO. Um, we're starting to take some more steps in this. But the reason I started this at this framing point when, when talking about Asia is that just imagine from a perception perspective that you are some of our partners in the Asia-Pacific um, of course, you, you accept and understand that um, that the West is committed to um, to issues in Europe, in Europe at this point in time. But then you see the Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister open uh, four new embassies in Europe, in Slovakia, in Lithuania, in Estonia, and, and uh, in Armenia. Um, and if if supposedly the Indo-Pacific, which has been mentioned in the letters to the throne, and you know ministers have talked about this this big un- unveiling of a strategy, mm-hmm. if this really is the center. Uh, the geoeconomic center of the world and, and the area where the future will be dictated. Um, that sort of says things, I think, uh, to partners is what's in it, you know, where is Canada here? Um, so I, the spectator thing is that, again, it's not that we're completely absent. It's not that we don't have embassies in the region, that we haven't uh, engaged in some of the agreements. But we've really looked at some of the, the challenges in Asia um, as frankly not we don't have a dog in the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't specifically say that, of course, in any of our statements. But I often feel that when it comes to whether it's North Korea, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's the South China Sea, um, we want to say the right things rhetorically. But at the end of the day, we feel that that's pretty much the Americans' problem. It's the Japanese problem. It's the the Aussies' problem. Um, but we, you know, we're more invested in the uh, transatlantic security environment. So that. For me, needs to change because what I'll often, you know, say to uh, Canadian audiences is, and in particular, I think this is true over Taiwan. If we got, if there was a hot conflict that happened there, which none of us want to happen, there is no opting out. I mean, this is not um, Iraq 2003, where we say, well, you know, sometimes we can, you know, play on the sidelines. You know, we're, you know, due to the fact of our geography. Uh, of our relationship with the United States. Um, this is not one of those opt-outs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not an elective uh, war of choice uh, that we just say, I mean, this has the chance to be, um, frankly, a global war. Um, and I think we, we, we just don't quite, we're not grasping those stakes, I think, yet. I'm going to ask you an unfair question in a second, Jonathan. But, you know, the building you used to work in, Department of Foreign Affairs or International Trade, which is called Global Affairs Canada, and who knows what it'll be called tomorrow. I think you've said more name changes than anything. You know, it's called the Lester B. Pearson building for a reason. Lester B. Pearson, of course, was prime minister. But before that, he was instrumental during the Suez crisis in the 1950s. That's when I think when Canadian foreign policy, Canadian foreign diplomats really, I think, punched above their weight in terms of international affairs in the post-war, Second World War period. Do you think that this spectator strategy with respect to Asia, is this part and parcel of, of the current instantiation of government, i.e. the Trudeau liberals, or does it predate that? And is it... Maybe one more example of what I like to call sort of Canadian apologetics. We don't want to really rock the boat anymore. We kind of want to say sorry all the time. Are we too afraid to engage in things in which, you know, 
you might get your shirt a little dirty and, and yet you still have to hand up, stand up for principles, whether it's Western principles or liberal democratic principles or NATO or whatever. Is that, is that what's wrong with Canadian foreign policy here right now with respect to Asia? Or is this something that's been going on for quite some time? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a couple you know, uh, points to, to raise there. I mean, number one, I think we're, we're, you know, it's maybe a basic and obvious point, but we're not in the the fifties and sixties anymore. And I think often the way that we think of our foreign policy in the, you know, the golden era of, of uh, peacekeeping and Pearsonian foreign policy, we often hearken back to that <clears throat> and, uh, and think we can return to it quite easily. I mean, I often Phil, you probably remember the heritage commercials back uh, yes. <laughs> in the eighties or seventies. And I remember a few of them. One of them that always strikes me is the, the Cyprus one, um, you know, where the Canadian peacekeepers are there and, uh, you know, two, uh, a Greek and a Turk, a Turkish Cypriot are, are fighting over a loaf of bread, it seems. And the Canadian, um, you know, blue hat comes in between and says, you know, I'm a Canadian peacekeeper, you know, don't fight. Uh, and <laughs> I point to that and I was like, I mean, that's, that's the sort of the glorified version of peacekeeping, right? And the idea that this is the role Canada can play in international affairs. I mean, I, I think it's an obvious point, but we're not in that era. <laughs> that era probably was glorified too. Um, but it seems that we're still stuck in this idea that we can kind of contribute in a fuzzy way. And I mean, the, the game is extremely muddy. It's darkened. It's complicated. It's not just in tra- traditional realms, as you know. I mean, it's in it's in the you know the dark web and cyber, uh, emerging technology. There's so many different um, angles here, and I, I just don't think that we've sort of um, I've been willing to accept that, especially as it relates to Asia. Um, so that's that's kind of my worry right now. And my last point on this is that it's a comfort issue too. I feel our our politicians, frankly, when they go out, and this is not just one party. True, this is this is not just the party of the day. I think this goes to the conservatives as well. Previously, is when they travel to the United States, obviously, or they travel to Europe. There's a level of comfort and awareness, and you know they may not say it, but they're they feel comfortable traveling there. Uh, even if it is a crisis period. But I feel like Asia, we're still not embracing that sense of, you know, we are a Pacific nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I make the the comparison, for example, to European friends like the Dutch, who the Dutch have a uh, an Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, they've had one for over a year. Um, and when I was in the Netherlands recently, and, and they were saying, you know, well, of course, we're happy to have our strategy. But Frankly, it's a bit embarrassing. You know, we don't even have a Pacific coastline. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, let, we let go of Indonesia a long time ago as a, a colony. Um, but you you have a massive Pacific coastline, uh, Canada, yet you have a G7 country, but you have nothing. Um, so I guess, you know, why we've been so resistant to embrace this has been a, a puzzling for me. Well, first of all, thank you for raising the heritage minutes. I'd forgotten about those growing up. So for my listeners who aren't Canadian, these were little snippets of Canadian history that, that the uh, government produced. I think you're right. It was 1970s, 1980s or so. For those of us who fell asleep during history class in grade six, it, it retaught us our Canadian history. And they were cute. You know, like you said, they were little kind of pick-me-up moments. Oh, things were great in the past kind of thing. It isn't Canada a wonderful country, which of course it is, but for different reasons. Let me expand this theme a little bit, Jonathan. So more recently, the, a couple things happened. Uh, in East Asia, um, in the Pacific area. One, of course, was this deal between the Americans, the, the Brits, and the Australians with respect to submarines to do with sort of defense packs. A lot of brouhaha here in Canada. Why wasn't Canada at the table? Here we have three of the other five eyes, the, the five eyes intelligence alliance sharing in this. Canada's out. New Zealand, well, New Zealand's always on the side on anyway, but boy, Canada is no longer the table with the five eyes. And then, of course, we have the quad involving India as well. Is this another sign you think that? 
maybe our allies are, and you mentioned the Dutch and, and you're right. The Dutch don't have any, any dog in the, in the, uh, in, in the Asian fight like they did with Indonesia when, when they were colonizers there. Is this another sign that maybe our allies are looking at Canada and saying, you know what guys, you're not poning up to the bar a lot these days. And people that don't pay their fair share and put in, you know, blood, sweat, tears, and toil to quote Winston Churchill, maybe you guys shouldn't be taken seriously anymore. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's one of the challenges that, I mean, I've heard different stories on AUKUS, as you mentioned, the the trilateral deal between Australia, the US uh, and the UK. Um, and of course, the Canadian side, we always have an uproar whenever we're left out of things. But the, the, the sad thing that I, I'm noticing now on, on agreements and arrangements as it relates to Asia is it's less of a spurn Canada um, and more of an irrelevance. Uh, mm. and, and what is worse to be you know, disliked or just to be not even thought of? Right. And, and I feel like increasingly we're in the not thought of category. Um, and frankly, that worries me more. Um, so I've had discussions with Americans uh, and Australians uh, on this, uh, specifically on AUKUS. And, um, you know, and even this is true also, for example, with the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, which is a public document available. Um, there's no you do a word search. There's no Canada uh, to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer often is, oh, like Canada. Um, we, we just didn't you know, think of including you. <laughs> so it really wasn't, um, you know, an, an intentional uh, Canada's not lifting its weight, um, more of a you're just not even on the radar. Um, so to me, that is the bigger issue for us to address. Um, and I think it, you know, even harking back to your question about, you know, the golden era of Canadian foreign policy, the challenge, I think, in this part of the world, and the reason why we're seeing arrangements like the Quad with India, Japan, uh, the US, Australia, or AUKUS, uh, the, the submarine, the, notionally the submarine deal, but it's bigger than that, mm-hmm. um, is, is the fact that multilateralism in that part of the world, um, and not to say it doesn't work, but it's not the same as Europe. And I think this is where the Canadian side struggles, you know, when we're going to Vienna or Geneva or, you know, um, you know, the United Nations in New York, I mean, we feel comfortable. We know that those organizations aren't perfect, but we feel multilateralism, right? That's the way that we should be addressing the, the world's problems. What I often tell them is you don't abandon multilateralism. I mean, yes, it's, it's important and, and in many ways more important in these days, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary, but insufficient to deal with the challenges in this part of the world. So we have to basically, to use an analogy, get comfortable being in the mud. Um, and the Asia is in the mud. You know, it's uh, many of these arrangements are uh, the sort of the ad hocs, the trilaterals, the quadrilaterals. Um, they're there uh, because, uh, specifically because Asia doesn't have that system or architecture like Europe has, like a NATO, like mm-hmm. a OECD. Um, and that's almost like an allergy for the Canadian foreign policy establishment because they're, as I said, they're used to uh, dealing in multilateral forms. So that this is, I think, the big, big issue in Asia is for us to get comfortable with engaging in an in, in architecture. And, and we have a history in it, frankly. You mentioned the Five Eye as well. I mean, um, that's obviously from a signals intelligence side where it yeah. originated. But I think work between those five countries more broadly on, on foreign policy, national security issues, I think should, should increase. As I remind my listeners, Jonathan, on occasion, at the end of the Second World War, Canada had the fourth largest Navy in the world. And I, I, I'm with you. We can't reinvent the 1950s and 60s, the so-called golden age of foreign policy. But clearly something is amiss here. I, I want to turn the conversation a little bit more internally now. So we're, we've, we've agreed that we have issues with China uh, largely, but also other parts of East Asia with respect to our foreign policy. We also have issues in a big way with Chinese interference here in Canada. Now, of course, my, my former organization, CSIS, has regularly informed the, the government of whatever stripe the Conservatives under Harper, under Mulroney, the Cretean Liberals, the Trudeau Liberals, uh, 
that the PRC is and others like the Russians are interfering in Canada. They're interfering in elections. They're spreading disinformation and um, misinformation. Uh, they're obviously they're, they're committing espionage in our on our soil. They're probably stealing technology. And yet, it's been my experience that successive governments have basically ignored whatever it is that CSIS and probably by extension the RCMP have been telling governments over these years. And I've always asked myself, well, why would you ignore what your intelligence slash law enforcement agencies are telling you about bad guys doing things that are counter to your to your either it's your foreign policy or domestic policy, or whatever. Do you have any insight as to why you think a variety of Canadian governments have been so remiss and just basically not want, wanting to hear the message that, hey, we got a problem, and, that, and part of that problem is foreign actors acting in our soil? Is it because we don't want to rock the, the, the economic boat with China? Why, why is it that we would be so oblivious to the harm being done here in Canada? Well, I think it's a really good question. And I mean, I, I, in order to, to deal with these challenges, so I mean, uh, just to point to one data point, and Phil, you've probably you know, saw this in the news as well, but the, the joint statement from um, the FBI director and MI5 in the UK, yes. um, which is, I mean, these things are unprecedented. I mean, the, the idea that that uh, intelligence agencies have to go out um, on the offensive publicly on this. And why is that the case? And I think it's the case, um, you know, not just in Canada, but I think Canada is probably a more glaring example of where the broader uh, establishment, I mean, this shouldn't necessarily only have to be something addressed by the intelligence agencies, um, but I think there's been a lack of action um, across the board uh, to really address this. I think there's a number of reasons why, um, I think probably even going back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, an interesting example is, you know, thinking of when David Cameron was in office in the UK um, and, uh, you know, the picture of him uh, sinking pints of beer with Xi Jinping and, you know, Mm -hmm. the idea of, well, well, you know, China still is the the way forward. Yes, there's a few problems, but maybe we can manage those. I I think we're starting to realize maybe we can't manage those (laughs) and maybe these are more, much more uh, diverse and, uh, and invasive than we, we thought. So I feel like we're in this space right now, um, also in Canada. I mean, one of the things that I would suggest on this, and I think it, it's going to create, it's going to have a need for creative thinking is, of course, in the intelligence world, but more broadly with our international partnerships is, number one, domestically, this can't, this, this challenge of interference and influence can't be dealt with by one agency, obviously, you know, your yeah. former um, agency is, is doing a lot of work on it, um, but it needs to be collaboratively done with uh, several uh, departments. But it also needs the buy-in of private sector, of, of academic Absolutely. institutions, Absolutely. So That's one element domestically. But then in the foreign side as well, I think uh, we talked a bit about the Five Eyes, and I think the Five Eyes is really important on this, and its importance is doubled or tripled, I think, um, uh, with the magnitude of these challenges. But actually, to deal with these challenges, you need more cooperation outside of the Five Eyes. And I mean, this is a, this is a kind of a sensitive issue because no one's suggesting, you know, you expand that group. But I think... The ad hoc cooperation, for example, you'll need with the Japanese, um, uh, with uh, with the South Koreans. I mean, even with the Taiwanese, frankly, which is you know some people may not want to talk with that publicly, but all of these things I think are are, are necessary um, for us to really get a, a real grasp on what's happening. I'm really glad you made that last point, Jonathan, and I couldn't agree with you more. As I've said to many people, when I went from CSC, so Communication Security Establishment, the Signals Intelligence Organization. To CSIS in 2001, my eyes were open that the world was bigger than the five eyes. And when we were at CSIS, we had relationships with hundreds of intelligence agencies around the world under what's called a Section 17 agreement. Uh, it's part of our legislation. And I certainly learned that 
when it came to counterterrorism, which is what I was dealing with, I learned an awful lot from my Western European partners that's with whom I never would have spoken had I stayed in Sigan. So I think your point is really, really, uh, it, it's an important one. And you're right. Uh, so, that, you know, Japan's part of the G7. So we have arrangements already there through G7. And there's an intelligence working group through the G7. Um, but you said Taiwan and South Korea, not traditional partners, but who must have oodles of information, intelligence, and all kinds of other data points that we can use as powers that have a similar interests, i.e. pushing back against against Chinese aggression. Jonathan, I, I, I got a sneaking suspicion we're going to have to talk more about these issues. You, you've, you've brought a wealth of knowledge to the table, and I really do appreciate you coming on today to speak about this. It's, again, it's not my forte looking at East Asia. It was very much peripheral when I worked at, at CSIS, but I think you've brought a, a lot of interesting points and, and I think essentially put the challenge on the table that Canada has to do better. Again, let's not harken back to the halcyon days of the 1950s, but let's do foreign policy the way it's meant. Let's work with our allies, allies plus, as you said, and uh, let's come up with some kind of concerted position against China. So I, I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to become the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Phil. It's always great to chat. And as you said, I mean, these issues uh, sadly aren't going anywhere any, anytime soon. Uh, so I'm sure that we'll have another chance to chat on these. I will definitely look you up again. So that was my, my chat with Jonathan Berkshire Miller. He's an international affairs professional with oodles of experience. Currently the director, uh, a senior fellow with the Japan Institute of International Affairs and it, the director and senior fellow of the Indo-Pacific program at the Ottawa-based McDonnell-Laurie Institute. So what do you think of our conversation? What do you think about Canada's position with respect to China? Are we doing enough? Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get a free daily digest, all the podcasts, all the blogs, including the new feature, Global Terrorism Weekly, where I look at terrorist attacks around the world. You can also find a link there to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. You can order it online. I'd love to hear your feedback, maybe some ideas for future podcasts. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>